0: Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here this morning. What a wonderful looking crowd it is as I look out over the audience. Listen, if you are visiting with us here this morning, we want you to know that you are certainly a welcome guest and that we're so very happy that you chose to come here and spend these moments of worshiping God together with one another. I hope you were uplifted by the songs. I, I know I wasn't sitting in the back so I couldn't hear, but I was sitting pretty close to the front and it sounded absolutely incredible just to be together with one another. So as you know, you know, Valentine's Day is tomorrow, so of course love is in the air. But have you ever thought about where did this, where did Valentine's Day come from? You know, what's the history of this thing? And one of the things that I do when I usually talk about such things is I, you know, it's just maybe the geek in me, but I go back and try to look at some of the history of how this came about. Some say that it began all the way back in the 6th century Rome and then was more like developed during the Victorian age. Most think that Valentine's Day began as a response by Christians to a pagan festival, a fertility festival called Lupercalia. Lupercalia is an interesting kind of of thing. It began, like I said, in the 6th century. It's when Roman priests would take a, a goat or a dog and would sacrifice it and then take the blood from that animal and soak its hide in the blood and then go about the streets and slap women with it. Yeah, that's how it be, and it was a fertility. It was violent. It was uh, it was cruel. It was uh, bloody. It had a sexual connotation that went along with it because it was a fertility, a blessing. And then they would take and take milk and splash it on the woman to cleanse her of the blood. I know it sounds gross, doesn't it? I mean. I mean, imagine that, you know, that you are a woman on Valentine's Day and you woke up in the morning and your husband was standing over you, slapping you with a bloody goatskin. Not very romantic at all, kind of weird if if you think uh, about it, but that's that's where they say it kind of heralded back to. And then they fast forward to the dark ages where a a Catholic priest by the name of Valentine had been martyred. And so they tried to move it from that pagan fertility uh, thing to that of the celebration of a, a martyred priest. And that's kind of where it's found its, its roots. And then in the Victorian age, it began to become more romantic. They began to really change that thing uh, 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 around. And so chocolate became something that you gave on Valentine's Day and candies you gave on Valentine's days, and flowers you gave on Valentine's days, and you gave cards and, and sent poems on Valentine's Day. So where did that begin? Well, chocolate began back in the 1900s when a fellow by the name of Richard Cadbury, Cadbury Chocolates, you know, from the British family, you know, they had a a chocolate um, company. And so they decided to take advantage of Valentine's and they began to commercialize chocolate. And we've all bought into it. And now we buy chocolates for one another because they didn't just sell chocolate. They made all kinds of different kinds of chocolates and filled them with different kinds of things. And so that thing really caught on and became a a big deal. Or, or what about candies? Where did the candies come from? Where did those little chalky tasting little you know, heart-shaped candies come from? Where did those things come from? Well, they also began probably in the early part of the 18th century, and when that began, it began just as lozenges that, you know, you could uh, eat of and they usually had some little writings on them and later on they became that chalky thing and in 1866 they decided to put little readings on on them and then in 1901 is when they decided to make them into little hearts and then they really commercialized them and that's how that thing began. Or if you talk about the poems, you know well, well poems they began all the way back probably in the 15th century when the first letters were noted to be written Charles who was called Duke of Orléans he wrote a love letter to his second wife at the age of 21. He was taken prisoner at the battle of Agincourt. And he was taken prisoner there. He writes her this love letter, but he never sees her respond because he's in there like 20 years. So he never sees that love poem. But that really catches on, and people begin writing poems to one another. So when you look at Valentine's Day, there's all kinds of traditions, all kinds of things that begin to take place. You might notice up in the this corner over here that little cherub that is there. That's Cupid. He begins from Greek mythology. Well, the god called, uh, called Eros, and so he carried around two, uh, a bow and arrow with two arrows, one for hatred and one for love, and that was not very really good. And so for Valentine's Day, we kind of you know, really made that a lot more simpler with kind of a chubby-looking little guy with little wings with a, a bow. and He just has one arrow that he shoots at you, and if you get hit with it, then you automatically fall in love with, with someone. Back to the poems, though. Generally, on Valentine's Day, you might receive a Valentine's card, right? And in that card, there's really some kind of poem that was there. Have you heard about the vinaigrette or vinegar uh, valentines? They were also called dreadful pennies. And they were a valentine that a person gave to another person who was, this person was pursuing them. There was a suitor and they wanted to discourage them. And so they sent them this penny dreadful. And the penny dreadful went something like this. To my valentine, tis a lemon that I hand you now, skidoo, because I love another, and there is no chance for you. <laughs> so that's kind of like the roses are red and vibes are blue and that kind of thing there. Well, that's a, that was a penny uh, dreadful. And so that's, you know, th- there's so much things that centered around this thing for Valentine's. But today, when we look at Valentine's, you know, Valentine's is just a day where we express our love for one another. It's a global kind of thing. It goes all the way around the globe where people express their love, whether it is a mate or whether it is a, a really good friend. It's just a, a means of expression of love. And that really resonates with human beings because we are people that really do like this love I- idea. And so as you think about this word love, what are all the things that surround it? Well, there's a lot of things that surround it. Uh, This is a word that can emotionally affect you in in incredible ways Just the glance at someone that we think that we are in love with can cause our hearts to almost flutter uncontrollably or it it could be that you know when you think about loving someone that you know a grown man you you can take a a grown man and and love can cause him to blush or this really tough guy it can cause him maybe to even to cry or it can cause a woman to jump up and down with joy or or with glee just the mention or the thought of being in love with someone the word love almost is obsessed with this thing. The world is obsessed with this thing called love. If you were to just think about all the songs, the thousands, probably millions of songs that have been written that are called love songs, and they come in all kinds of various forms. They can be country songs. They can be pop songs. They can be hip hop songs. They can be rap songs. All kinds of songs have this idea of loving. Or if you go inside a store, it probably there is probably a whole, a whole section that is just dedicated to Uh, Cars that you can buy for those expressing your love for them. It could be a Valentine's card It could be a Mother's Day card or a Father's Day card or an anniversary card or a birthday card where you express your love for that person Or you can go into the magazine and book part of the store and there you'll find a shelf full of romantic novels that talk about various loves and and things like that it's even caught on in the airwaves think about the shows that centered around the subject of love like the Bachelor, or the Bachelorette, that now millions upon millions of people wait, you know, with just almost, you know, bated breath about what's going to happen from one week to the next. Is John going to choose Sue or Jan or whoever that might be? Or well, will Jan or Sue will he she accept his love? It's just you know, it's just this thing that we are infactionated when it comes down to love. Of course, psychiatrists. They say that it's one of the top three needs that all humans have. We have the need to be needed. We have the need to be wanted and to belong. And we all have the need to be loved. And so love is just something that resonates with us. And that's probably why this thing like Valentine's is just so uh, caught on with the around the world, if you will. But the Bible is not silent about love. The Bible talks a lot about love. The word itself is. Is used like 479 times. That tells you that, you know, this idea of love is something that is really real when it comes down to human beings. And there's gonna be a reason for it that I'll show you in a few moments. Someone said that the Bible is God's love letter to men and so as you go down through this idea of love throughout the scripture you see god as a god of love that it's within his nature to love and that god loves in a manifold ways many different kinds of ways that he loves and of all the writers in the scriptures probably john would be known as probably the expert on love because he probably talks about love in more detail and more depth than probably any of the other writers in the bible with the exception of maybe Solomon, who wrote the, the, the Song of Solomon, uh, Song of Songs. And when you read that, that thing is filled with lots of imagery that surrounds this idea of being in love with your, your mate. But John writes in details, not so much about the relationship that we have with one another, which he does, of course, but he talks about the relationship that we have with God and how God loves us. And because God loves us, he motivates us to love one another. So here's what I want to do this morning is I want to share with you from the eyes of the Apostle John how he views God's amazing love. And he sees it in several different ways. So if you open your Bibles, if you will, to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4 verses 7 through 21. Now most of you and certainly probably teenagers you probably remember or have in your mind John chapter 4 and verse 8 because in that verse of scripture says God is love and so we we know that part that is there but there's more than just that that is there there's a lot that comes with it. In fact The amazing love of God is is evidence. So the amazing evidence of God's love is found in verses 7 through 8. Listen to what it says. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. It's a familiar passage of Scripture. But what he's saying there is that this idea of love is incontrovertible when it comes down to a witness that would either convict us or make us guilty when it comes down to how we love one another. He starts off by saying that we are to love one another for God is, is love. And so it's something that you just can't get around. And the reason is, is because it says several things about who we are. It proves who we are. And the first one is this, is that it says that you are a part of the family of God. That's what he says, verses 7 and 8, that when you become a follower of God, you become his child. And so it's a surefire mark of a person being the child of God because God is his love. And if God is is love, then, of course, his children would be love. Think about this way. When I was born into my family, okay. when I was born into the family of Richard Sutton, my dad, and my mom, Velma, when I was, was born into that family, well, after a while, I started to take on a lot of the, the nature of my dad or the characteristics of my dad. Now, none of you have met him because he died in, in 1980, okay? But, uh, but if you had seen my dad, and watched, and, and I have, by watching pictures, of course, I knew him, you know, I have a lot of his mannerisms in my life. It's not planned mannerism. It's just there. I stand much like the way he stood. I hold my arms much like he held his arms. A lot of those mannerisms. My brother, I think, is just seeing him, he has more mannerisms of my dad than I do. He has the heart of my dad. He has the gentleness of my dad. He has a lot of the love that my dad had that that I don't think I have as much of. So not only do I see the nature and the characteristics of my dad in my brother as well as in, in myself, I just know that it's something that is just there because it's there. And it's the same thing when you talk about what God is about. When you talk about the very nature of God, So. So what is God's nature? Because when I am born into the spiritual family of God and I'm tied together by that bloodline there, I began to take on the same characteristics or nature of the Father. First Peter chapter one and verse four says that we became partakers of the divine uh, person or the divine person or, or God him, himself. And of course, we're made after the image of God. So what does that all mean? And what is God's nature? Well, in verse eight, John says that God is love. So God's nature is to love, God is love. Now don't get that thing reversed because some people say, well, love is God. No, love is not God. God is love. And so as one person says, love does not define God. God defines what love is because that is who he is. That is his nature to be loving. It's his nature to be affectionate towards his children. It's his nature to act on that love. So it's both a noun and a verb when it comes down to God. He is the embodiment, the full embodiment of what it means to love one another or love others. So all that God does and all that God is is motivated by his love. In fact, God created the world purely out of a motive to love. God created you because he wanted someone to love he wanted to, to love you and he wanted you to love him back And so he created us to, to love us and God created heaven itself So that at the end of this life We'll have a place where we'll spend eternity with him and with his son Jesus and the Holy Spirit and one another and all the beings of heaven that place is designed as a place where people truly do love each other and express that love for one another And so if you were to sum up just the first idea is that God is is love and that you were created in his image. Because you were created in his image, uh, a Christian is going to love. So if you just go down through it logically, remember I said it's incontrovertible. That is, there's no argument against it. Number one, God's nature is love. God is love. Those who are born again become the children of God god's children share his nature we become partakers of that divine uh, nature and his children are going to to love so so the amazing thing about god's love is that it's evidence you can't get our, our, around it that's who we are and i'm going to say that to you because it's not sometimes just natural for us to love one another we're more bent towards the other than he says Love your neighbor and hate your enemy that was read to us just, at, just a few minutes ago. That's more natural for us. I mean, it's natural for us to love those who are lovable. It's not as natural to love those who are unlovable. And yet God's nature pushes in that, us in that direction to have his nature as well. Here's the second thing it proves. It proves that you are in fellowship with God. Notice that he says the word know here. In verse eight, here, look at what it what it says here. The one who does not uh, does not love does not know God, for God is love. This word know is not a head knowledge thing. This word know here is more talking about a an intimate knowledge of the heart. It's where it moves from your head to your heart. It's not so much about Knowing about love as it is to know love. It's like God. It's not so much about knowing about God or About Jesus. It's about knowing them in a personal kind of relationship For instance back in the 1980s Ronald Reagan was running for the presidency and a popular preacher of that time went up and asked him He says to the president. Mr. President. Do you know Jesus or do you know about Jesus? There's a big difference between those two when you, you think about it, is there's a difference between knowing about someone and have a lot of intellectual knowledge about things, and then to know them experientially, to know them in your heart, where it moves from your head down to your heart. When it comes down to loving, you can gauge how much do you know God by how much you love. God is love. We are the children of God, and if we're the children of God, then it just seems logical that we would be those who love both the lovable and the unlovable. So the question that I would have for you at this juncture would be this. How much do you have love in your heart right now? How much love do you have in your heart right now for others around you or for your enemies? Just hold that thought for a moment. Here's the other thing I think John is talking about. He's talking about the amazing example of love. Look at verses 9 through 11. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, Uh, we also ought to love one another so when you talk about god's love god's love is almost like well the cross is almost like a neon sign that expresses god's love for instance did you notice that he uses the word manifested here that's what my translation said it said that he manifested himself Some of you might say he showed himself. Literally, the word means to come out into the open or to make a public display. That's what it's talking about. What he's saying is that God took his only begotten son and made him a public display of how much he loved us through the cross of Jesus Christ, that God gave his only begotten son. Romans 5 and verse 8 says that God demonstrates his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the cross is both, uh, both a demonstration of love as well as the definition of love. It defines, or God defines what it's all about, and he defines it by saying, listen, I'm not just, you know, when Jesus said, you know, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say that you should love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That's almost the opposite of how we are, Right. And yet that's how God demonstrates who he is and what he is about through this act of giving his son to the world. So love is seen in several ways. One is love is something that is is sacrificial. Notice it says that he gave his only begotten son. I think the New International verse says he gave his one of a kind. It's just one of a kind. The word itself means unique. None other like. It stands alone by itself. And what that says to us is when you think about the cross itself, it's saying that God gave the very best that he had to give. They looked around heaven. What can we give that can bring men out of his sin and, and save him from eternity? And that is God gives his very best. He gave his only begotten son. It didn't say he just gave his son. It says he gave what was the most valuable to him, none other like him, he gave his the very best, and that that love was costly. It was a costly love. When I was, um, when I was uh, being raised, okay, and in my maybe early teen years, or going into my teen years, there were a group of people that were in our country at that time, they were known as hippies or flower children and things like that, and uh, Dave, you remember those days, and, and, but anyway, they were known as those who went about talking about free love is actually just an excuse for sexual promiscuity. But they talked about free love, but I want you to know that love is never free. Love is never free. It always costs something. It costs God, his son. It costs Jesus his life in order that he might purchase the church with his blood. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 says that. Uh, It is the supreme definition of uh, his love for the church and that sacrifice that was there. It's something that is sacrificial when you think about love. No strings attached. God loved us and was willing to sacrifice his son in order that we might be saved. Where he knew the vast, vast, vast majority are going to reject that. But then he knew that folks like you would accept him and the price was worth the, the cost. Then love is selfless. God didn't send his son because of what it would do for him. He sent his son for what it would do for you. How would it bring you into a relationship with God? And so real love always seeks to meet the needs of somebody else and not ourselves. That's how God is. Now, take those two ideas of selfless love and sacrificial love and ask it about ourselves. Are we sacrificial when it comes down to loving one another, to loving our spouse, to loving our children, to loving our parents, to loving our friends, to loving a complete stranger? How does that fit with us? And then we learn that in verse 10 that love is something that is satisfying. The word that is used there is the word propitiation. That's a strange word. I mean, think about it. when is the last time uh, you guys heard the word "propitiation" outside the walls of a church building? We don't hear that word. It's kind of a, a, it's kind of a different kind of word, but it has a, a, a deep meaning, because the deep meaning of the word <clears throat> is that of satisfaction. That's what it means. Some call it the atoning sacrifice or the satisfaction of God. That's what the cross was about. It's about satisfaction. Have you all seen, you know, like movies or a TV show where some guy insults another guy? I mean, he really insults him. He offends him, and they take off a glove and slap the guy in the face and say, I demand satisfaction. He feels so offended, so insulted that he wants recourse for that. Well, that's God. God created humanity, sin entered into the world, and as a result, there has to be a satisfaction for that sin because God is holy, and we are, are not. And so God cannot abide, abide unholiness or righteousness or sin, and so his wrath breaks out upon that. The Bible says in Romans 3 and verse 23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that everyone inside this room here fits Romans 3 and verse 23. Everyone who's watching me online, that fits you. And everyone outside the building, past and present, and those in the future are going to find themselves at Romans 3 and verse 23, falling short of the glory of God. Missing the mark is what that means there. So what are the consequences for our sin? Romans 6 and verse 23 says the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. We deserve death, but that's not what God wants for us. God doesn't want, uh, want death for us. He wants to give us life. So what does he, he do? Well, what he did was, is he took the wrath that we deserved and placed it on Jesus. Why? So that we could be healed, so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. About a month from now, I'm going to be sharing with you a lesson on Gethsemane. Gethsemane, you recall, is where Jesus spent the night in prayer before he is going to be betrayed and arrested and eventually crucified, right? Gethsemane, if you had been there, is the west part or the east side of the city of Jerusalem. You go down through the Kidron Valley. That word Kidron means dark or murky. It's a dark night. It's a murky night. Jesus crossed the Kidron, comes to the foot of the Mount of Olives, And near the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press in Hebrew, olive press, which means there was a day when olives were pressed, where they pressed all the oil out of the olive there. When Jesus was in the garden, there were olive trees there. They were probably there at least a century or more before Jesus. They still stand there today, some of them, by the way, 2,000 years later. But Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you recall, it says that after, after partaking of the Passover and instituting the Lord's Supper, it says that they sang a hymn and they crossed over the Kidron and come to the Mount of Olives or Gethsemane. And there he tells his eight, eight of his apostles, he says, stay here and wait. And he takes with him three close ones, Peter, James, and John. And, it says, and they went away from them. And Jesus stopped them in the midst of the garden. And it says, and he went about a stone's throw from him. And then it says he began to be grieved to the point of death. And if you recall, it says that Jesus fell. He fell. It didn't say he knelt down and prayed. It says he fell down and he prayed. I look at it and I wondered to myself, why would he say he fell down and prayed? Think about the weight, the crushing weight that he is about to experience on the cross of Calvary when God is going to take all of the sins of humanity from the first man all the way up to the present day and in the future of all those who would live he would take all those sins of the world and those sins would become crushing down upon Jesus Christ. Remember in his prayer he says, "Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me." So what was that cup? I believe it's the cup of God's wrath. God's wrath are going to be poured out on the son Of God remember I said to you that love is costly and What it costs God God and Jesus had never been separated for a moment in eternity for a moment And in that moment in time on the cross, he'll bear all your sins your sins and my sins and would crush him It would break his father's heart and it would break his heart as well for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, and he himself bore our sins. I think some of your translations carried our sins in his body on the cross. Why? So that by his wounds we would be healed. So when you talk about amazing love, not only do you see the evidence of God's amazing love, you see the example of God's amazing love in his son, Jesus Christ. And that's how we are to love one another. If we're ever in doubt how are we to love one another, we have been showed by God how to love one another. Then you see the amazing essence of God's love, verses 12 through 16. No one has seen the Father at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified to the Testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed that the love which God has for us, for us, God is love, and one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in, in him. This is the kind of, of love that begins on the inside and is manifested on the outside. It begins inside us. It's where we come to a knowledge of who Jesus is about and what the cross is about, and that is taken from our heads and moves into our hearts so that it is manifested from the inside out. In the original language, there are several words for this word love. There is storge, which is a familial kind of love. It's the kind of love that a husband has for a wife or a wife has for the husband or children have for their parents or the parents for their children. There's a bloodline that connects us. It's a string that is there. The other word is eros. It's where we get the word erotica from. It, it, it shows value in another person. It's a central kind of love. It's the kind of love that a husband has for the wife and the wife back to their husband in a central kind of way and that it stays within the perimeters of marriage between a man and a woman. There's philia. It's the friendship kind of love. It's brotherly love. It's the kind of love that I have for my, my friends or my best friend. I, I like hanging out with you. I like to talk with you. I like to visit with you. We share some of the same things in common. It's a philia, a friendship kind of love. But the love that is commanded in the scriptures and that, is this, that, that God defines is agape love, not storge though we're told to love our, our parents and to love our wives in a familiar kind of way. Not eros, though we're commanded to give to our, our wives their, their due, or husbands their due. Philia, we're to be friends with one another. It's this agape one that's the, the big one. And the reason is, is because this is the only type of love that has no strings attached to it whatsoever. Storge, eros, philia, all have strings attached. I love you if this happens, or if this is a part of the circumstance. But this kind of love is the kind of love that was read to us and that I've already mentioned to you. It's a loving the unlovable. And that's where it gets really hard. That's the hard part of being a Christian is loving people who are unlovable. And yet think about how much God loved the world. Was the world lovable? Are we sometimes lovable? Well, absolutely not. And yet God loves us, and as children of his, that's how we are to love. In fact, that's the mark of what a Christian really is all about. So it's about God living in us and loving people through us. That's the love of God. And finally and lastly is the amazing effects of love. So we've seen the, you know, the evidence of love. We've seen the example of love. We've talked a little bit about the essence of love then there is this effect of love. Love affects people, physically speaking. I mean, there's euphoria uh, when you're around someone that you, you love. Your ears might turn a little red. Your cheeks might blush. There's a euphoria. There's attachment and security. Less stress, psychiatrists tell us. Improved physical health when you love uh, people. It's you you live longer, you have a longer lifespan. Those of us who are married live longer than those of you who are single. You know, I know that might seem surprising to some of you, but that's what the science says. So love affects us physically, but more so it affects us, us spiritually speaking. Remember I said that love is, I think I said that the love is like a thermometer that tells us what our spiritual temperature is. Well, love does it. It gives us confidence in our relationship with, with God. Look at what he says at verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For one who does not love his brother whom he can see cannot love God whom he cannot see. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So it gives us confidence. And the first one is confidence in our relationship with God. And by that I mean that you don't fear anyone that you love. My dad, you know, was a pretty good sized guy and he could be a disciplinarian. But, you know, I, I respected my dad. I, I reverenced him in, in many ways. Um, I was amazed by him. Um, but he could be a disciplinarian. I was never I was never one to fear my dad in terms of trembling before him. I never trembled from him with him. Even when he was going to give me a spank, I I didn't tremble at that. I was afraid of it, but I didn't tremble at that. And the reason was because I had no doubts in my mind that my dad loved me. He never abused me, always took care of me. There was no doubt in my mind that my dad would sacrifice anything for me. I knew that. So, you know, he would sometimes discipline me. But as I grew older, I'd look back on that discipline and I didn't see it as a mark of his hatred towards me. I saw it as a mark of his love toward me because a father who loves sometimes disciplines. The book of Hebrews says that. And so there was a a reverential fear, a respectful fear of my dad, but not shaking like an aspen tree kind of fear. Because you don't fear anyone that you love. And that's God. Brothers and sisters, one day you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And you're going to stand there alone. It's going to be you, mano y mano between you and God. So when you think about standing before the judgment seat of God, knowing that you've sinned and fallen short, how are you going to respond to that? Are you is does it is it terrifying? Is it uncomfortable? Does it make you squirm? Does it terrify you? And the answer to that, those questions are, is it, it shouldn't. It shouldn't as you stand before God because John says here, there is no fear of judgment. And if there's a fear of judgment, it means because you're afraid of being punished. But don't you know that the example of the cross, God's son died on the cross in order that you might be saved. That's what... Romans 8 and verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ uh, Jesus. We're in a good relationship with God. Yes, we're sinners, but we're also blood bought and blood washed. The Bible says, 1 John 1 and verse 7 says that we're continually being washed by the blood of Jesus. And so as we stand before the judgment seat of God, we stand before a father who is capable of punishment, but one who loves us more than we can even begin to fan them. God's love defeats all fears. I like the way the New Living Translation puts verse 18. Listen to what it says. Such love has no fear, because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, uh, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We haven't got it, if that's where we are. But God has done everything. This amazing love has done so much for us that allows us to stand before a holy God and know that he loves us and wants the very best for us and doesn't want death for us. He wants life for us. The other is compassion for one another. It's impossible to love someone whom you haven't seen if you can't love those that you have seen. And that's what he says here in John. Loving others is simply a command. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's a command that we love one another. First John 4 and verse 21. And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God loves his brothers also. And that's the end. That's, I mean, you put a big period or an exclamation after that that we're commanded to love. But we've been shown what God's nature is and what our nature should be. We've shown by example how to love we show the essence of love that comes from the inside out by god living in us and through us and the effect of that is is that there is no fear and now we love one another so what does real love look like well it's sacrificial or he talked about that it's it's selfless first corinthians 13 verse 4 says paul says love is patient and love is kind and then he takes you all the things that love is not but love is patient And love is kind. Joel Seagrave shared a lesson with us Sunday or Wednesday night where he says next week, I guess beginning now is the first day of the week. Beginning this week, this is the week called Kindness Week. Kindness Week. And Monday starts off with Valentine's, with loving one another. So so John ends that section of Scripture by saying, we have a command that we are to love one another that we're to love our brothers, that we're to love our sisters. Jesus said, as he gave a new commandment, he says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So I almost, almost was going to call this sermon the, the, the best sermon you ever heard preached. Because the best sermon you'll ever hear preached or best sermon anyone will ever hear preached is the one that you preach. How you love people. Remember how I said that people are almost obsessed with love. Love is everywhere. Love is always in the air. Well, people are constantly watching your life and watching my life to see how we deal with one another. Are we sacrificial? Are we selfless? Are we kind? Are we patient with those that we interact with? There are people who will never walk into this building here and listen to a sermon that I preach. But there are people all around that are constantly watching you and listening to the sermon that you are preaching with your life which may one day bring them to this building here to listen to me preach. So it's Valentine's Day. If you really want to give the best Valentine's Day beyond just the chocolates and the candy and the, you know, the flowers and the Valentine's card that you're going to give. Well, the best Valentine you can give to a person is your heart. Because when you give someone your heart, well, then you give them your love. So that's the lesson on the amazing love of God the amazing love of God is evidence it's incontrovertible the love of God the example of the cross is right there for us to see and to learn from and to uh, emulate the essence of it begins on the inside and comes out for people to see and it affects us it affects us as we look to eternity and it affects us how we live with one another in our relationship to one another So, I hope you'll take the sermon and and think about how it might become amazing to you and be a part of uh, your life. And what your response would be on this day to it in God's love. While together we stand and sing and give you opportunity.